Thanks for choosing a 3CR podcast. Throughout June 2023, we're running our annual Radiothon, where we ask you, the listener, to make a donation so that we can continue to make great radio. Your donation will help keep us community-owned and community-controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au slash donate. And with that done, please enjoy the podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Annie here for uh, Solidarity Breakfast. It's raining outside, it's cold and nippy, and uh, so this is a perfect place to be on a Saturday morning. Today we're going to... uh, We've got a lot of things on our plate. We're going to uh, go to a demonstration that ha- happened on the steps of Parliament on Wednesday. It was for Healthy Futures. We're going to talk to uh, Carol Bennett from the Alliance for Gambling Reform. We're going to hear uh, a chat I had with David Dave Fishwick, who is <laughs> has had a biopic uh, movie made of him. Uh, his life. <laughs> it's called The Bank of Dave and it's just out and there's a reason for why I spoke to him. He's a fantastic fellow. Uh, this is the week that was and then we're going to go on a slow march through the city with Extinction Rebellion which happened on Sunday just past. Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical, community-owned media during our Radiothon. We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep 3CR going for another year. Fierce, independent community media is vital and we need your support to keep radical voices and issues on the airwaves. The 3CR Radiothon kicks off in June. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. Call the station on 03 or drop in at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, during business hours. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. And if you haven't noticed, it is June and uh, we're all hoping that you'll put some money in. Target is $2,750,000 and uh, Solidarity Breakfast Live Radiothon show will be the 18th, Saturday the 18th. Oh, no, Saturday the 17th, I think it is. And um, uh, you can ring in, you can donate. Uh, or you can go online, but we'd love you to ring in and just say hello to us, which would be great on the day, so we're not lonely in the studio. Yes, digital's fantastic, but uh, human interactions even better. Um, 
On uh, Wednesday, 30 healthcare workers gathered at the Victorian Parliament steps to send the Victorian government a strong message that gas use in homes is harmful to health. They're part of Healthy Futures. I got some uh, words of wisdom from the various people who were there. Can you give me an idea about what's been going on today? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, So uh, today, Healthy Futures, along with a delegation um, of doctors from the Australian Federation of Medical Women, the uh, Australian College of General Practitioners and the Australasian College of Emergency Medicine, met with the Energy Minister, Lily D'Ambrosio, to discuss the open letter that we delivered to her today. Um, And so we really talked about our concerns around the continued continuation of using gas in our homes. We want all new gas connections to be gone by 2025. We've asked the government for that commitment. We also want a commitment to get all um, public buildings, including public housing and hospital hospitals and health infrastructure off gas because we want our healthcare workers and our patients um, to be able to utilise gas-free healthy hospitals. Are you seeing uh, health concerns from gas? Yeah, we are. Our doctors, um, two of them which are GPs, we're talking um, to, you know, all the asthma cases that they are seeing. We know um, that 12% of the total asthma burden is from gas in homes. So we can get rid of that just by um, not having future homes connected to gas and then also retrofitting existing homes to get them off gas. Asthma is a huge problem here. There's also the fact that by continuing to burn gas, we exacerbate climate change, and climate change is leading to extreme weather events such as heat waves and fires. And our healthcare professionals are on the front line of dealing with those really bad health outcomes, and they also talk to the minister about their personal experience in that area as well. Was she uh, receptive? She was. She was very receptive. I think she really understands the issue, which is really great. And um, it was wonderful that she made the time to hear from these health experts. And um, it was a really positive meeting. So we're really hopeful and looking forward to um, the Minister making announcements when the uh, gas substitution roadmap update is released later in the year. Is it unusual for doctors and general practitioners in general to stand up and voice political views like this? Um, Maybe it used to be, but not so much. No, I mean, as I mentioned, these healthcare workers are often on the front line of dealing with health issues that have arose because of climate impacts. They're seeing it every day in their GP clinics, in the emergency um, rooms, in the hospitals. So um, more and more they are speaking out. And I think what's really extraordinary is that we've seen these big medical colleges actually get on board and co-sign this letter um, because they're hearing from their members that they're really concerned about these impacts. And we know there's something we can do about it. So I think it's really great we're seeing particularly Healthy Futures. We work with healthcare workers and doctors and we're seeing more and more um, healthcare workers wanting to step up and speak out. This is only the beginning, isn't it? This is absolutely only the beginning. I'm Annie. I'm from 3CR. Nice and to meet you, Annie. G'day. And I was hoping you'd give me, uh, elucidate some of the issues that came out in this 
demonstration today? Absolutely. So my name's Harry Jennings. I'm a GP and I coordinate Healthy Futures, which is an affiliate group of Friends of the Earth um, focusing on healthcare workers taking action to reduce pollution and climate change. Um, we've assembled here today with um, representing 30 health organisations and over 150 Victorian healthcare workers um, who have signed a letter to um, the Minister for Climate Action, um, Lily D'Ambrosio in Victoria, requesting that um, the Victorian government um, assist Victorians to switch from gas to renewable electricity in their homes for health reasons. Um, not many people know um, that gas use in the home accounts for 12% of the childhood asthma burden in Australia and the child growing up in a house with gas faces a similar risk of asthma as a child growing up exposed to secondhand cigarette smoke. So it's a significant health risk um, and it's something that um, Victorians shouldn't have to put up with. The um, Australian Capital Territory Government has already ruled out um, new gas connections to homes. Um, I think they did that last year. So we've just asked the Victorian Government to match them um, by the end of 2024. Um, so we've delivered the letter day with that, along with a number of other asks, requesting that the Victorian government assist people to transition from gas to electricity, um, particularly if they're on low incomes, and also to run all um, government and public buildings on 100% renewables rather than gas. And so, so as a general practitioner, yeah. are you actually receiving, getting patients who are in this uh, cohort are affected by gas? Oh, well, I guess a lot of Victorians use gas. Gas... Um, Victorian houses use more gas than houses in any other state or territory um, for historical reasons. Um, and I work with a, um, a, a demographic of you know, some low socioeconomic people who struggle to pay their gas bills. And that's another thing that this, um, and this change will assist is renewable electricity is actually a lot cheaper to run once it's installed. So if we can help people switch, it'll reduce the cost of living. Um, but also, yes, reducing their exposure to air pollution and asthma. Um, and another great risk from gas is carbon monoxide poisoning poisoning, which is all too tragically current. We keep seeing people with carbon monoxide poisoning in emergency departments because of faulty gas appliances. So that's another thing that Victorians shouldn't have to put up with, and that's why we need to get to 100% renewable electricity now. Are you uh, happy with the turnout? Yes, delighted. Um, there's a wide variety of organisations. Um, a wide variety of organisations represented and a huge crowd today. Yeah. And it's only the beginning. That's right. Well, um, apparently I wasn't in the meeting with the minister. Um, our other delegate was in several medical colleges, but apparently it was a very um, good and productive meeting and the minister's receptive to our requests. Um, so uh, we're looking forward to the Victorian government um, announcing some outcomes in keeping with our health recommendations. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Professor Diana Edgerton-Warburton, who came into the meeting with us today from the Australasian um, College, College for Emergency Medicine. The Australasian, Australasian, the Australasian College for Emergency Medicine. And uh, so this is important, this issue. It's really important to emergency physicians. Um, we see heat health emergencies as a disaster approach. Um, and every day in the emergency department, we see people that have the health effects of climate change. Uh, it's absolutely urgent. And there's a terrible paradox going on. We're actually working in hospitals that are causing the climate change that then we're treating the patients. Um, and so um, for the government to address uh, and turn off the gas supplies to these hospitals would have, you know, multiplying effect. Uh, it would benefit the hospital and the health service and it would save money, but then it would also reduce the health impact of the healthcare system. I mean, health is responsible for about 7% of our greenhouse gas emissions. Addressing that could have a big and measurable population benefit. So you were a part of the delegation. Was the minister receptive in your view? 
Absolutely. What I said to the minister is any government action on this will result in a cheer squad of compassionate and passionate healthcare workers that will amplify their message because it is just such an uh, obvious win for government and policymakers. It's unusual for doctors, professionals to step up and be politically uh, active in this way, isn't it? No, look, I don't think so. Not emergency physicians, because we really are at the coalface. What I talked to the minister about is the great fossil fuel gas gaslighting that's occurred, where they regard themselves as natural gas, as a healthy option. And in fact, up until recently, we also congratulated the, um, the minister on addressing point three in our request, which was to turn off the rebate for gas hot water systems. They've already shown some action, but we were able to talk about a couple of other quick wins around no new healthcare builds or renovations that are gas powered. And we also talked to the Minister about the real and present danger of our health system being plugged into gas. Uh, because it means if there is a problem with the gas supply, our health system infrastructure is vulnerable. We, we found in Lithgow in New South Wales, the army had to be called in to heat a hospital because their gas supply um, died. So really, it's, it's important for our future. It's actually important for next week. Are you feeling depressed about the future of our planet? The Eco-Socialism 2023 conference could address your worries by providing a platform for radical solutions. Activists from around the world will examine the links between the ecological, economic and political crises of our time. You'll hear from Japanese Marxist Kohei Saito, author of Capital in the Anthropocene, who argues that capitalism's pursuit of unlimited growth and profits the major barrier to ecological sustainability. Inspirational speakers from the Asia-Pacific region, including India, Pakistan and the Philippines, will take up the fight for climate justice and against war and fascism. Eco-socialism also highlights women's and queer oppression, First Nations sovereignty and so much more, including a session featuring former refugee Baruz Bachani. For more information and bookings, go to our website, ecosocialism.org.au. Ecosocialism 2023, A World Beyond Capitalism, Saturday July 1 to Sunday July 2 at Victorian Trades Hall. A 3CR supporter. Hi, I'm Ruby from Fitzroy Primary and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. And you're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we've got uh, Carol Burnett here from uh, Alliance for Gambling Reform. And good morning. Uh, good morning, how are you? Alliance for Gambling Reform. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's uh, cold and nippy outside and it's raining. <laughs> um, the Alliance for Gambling Reform have just put out an um, online gambling policy statement and uh, I've been reading through it and uh, there is a lot of harm out there for Australia when it comes to gambling online, isn't there? There certainly is, and, you know, we have some of the weakest laws across the world, and we've been able to demonstrate that, you know, compared to other regulatory regimes um, around the world, um, we are falling behind, and we're really struggling to keep up with the, the fast pace of technology and, you know, the gamification um, that's occurring, and that means basically, you know, gambling-like um, features are being added into online games. 
So we really need to catch up. We're playing catch up. Um, we're behind. But we need to do a lot more if we're to protect our communities and our kids from the growing harms associated with this. And now when you say uh, gaming and gambling are now hand in hand, uh, we're talking about grooming children, aren't we? We certainly are. I mean, look, some of these game-like features are very close to being, you know, gambling features and very often they're they're completely grey. It's very difficult to determine one from the other. I mean, you're seeing things like... Um, you know, companies buying um, gaming companies, and these are companies that currently produce poker machines, buying up gaming companies that, you know, are, you know, um, kids are using their games. And those games are actually, you know, they have poker machine-like features in those games. Um, as well and we're, as talking about, like, we're talking about free apps to kids to learn yeah. how to be uh, yeah. hooked up to gambling Right. That's right. And become the next generation of the world's biggest losers because that's what we are in Australia. We lose more per capita than any other country in the world to gambling. So it's not like we don't already have a significant problem when it comes to gambling. We also don't have the regulations and the, the, the things in place that would enable us to manage the growing losses and all of the harms that go hand in hand with that. When you talk about losses, it, this is gobsmacking. $7 billion in losses suffered each year across Australia. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and growing fast. <laughs> that's just unbelievable. But, of course, it's addictive. It's highly addictive. Um, it is addictive. Uh, and, you know, these companies are very astute at knowing exactly how they can hook people in and keep them on the hook. I mean, we know um, that many of the online companies um, that have given evidence to the, the inquiry into online gaming, gambling, sorry, and its harms, um, at a recent inquiry, admitted that um, when people are starting to win, they stop them from gambling on their on their platforms and we know that when they're losing they're provided with inducement and encouragement to keep going so you know they they know exactly what they're doing they know how to to put these pitch their games so that people are very um you know keen to continue playing them and you know keen to lose their money now, let's look, look at light-touch gambling policy and regulation. I would like to uh, tease this out. And uh, it's interesting looking at your report. Res- uh, uh, I would like listeners to take into account the notion that in policies they will put things like responsible gambling and problem gambling, gambling versus harm prevention and gambling harm. These are there's a, a, a distinct difference between the uh, power of the lobbyists from the gambling industry and the people who uh, have lived experience of the harm of gambling when it comes to policy making in Australia. So true, and you know what we've seen is that the gambling industry have been able to set the tone. They've been dictating the language that we use. They've been putting forward this idea that you need to responsibly gamble. Well, what on earth is that? I mean, what they're really saying is let's blame the individuals and move the focus off the product. And we've seen this in tobacco um, and areas that are, are harmful. 
where those companies too would say, well, you know, it's not the cigarettes, it's the way people use them and that becomes addictive and causes the problems. Well, that's actually not the case. If you've got very lax regulation and you're not um, able to manage this issue, we know that, you know, it's the problem is a societal problem. It's not the problem just of the person. And we also know, you know, the other thing that is often promulgated is this idea that there's a small number of problem gamblers. Well, that's just simply not true. <laughs> if you're, if you are the country uh, with $25 billion in losses to gambling and you're way ahead of any other country in the world by 40%, that's not a small number of people. That's actually a significant community problem that impacts us all, whether it be, you know, family violence, whether it be uh, mental health issues, anxiety, depression, suicide, um, financial losses. I mean, there are a whole range of ways in which we as a society pay for this problem. So we have to stop blaming the individual. Um, it is a highly addictive product, that's true, but let's stop making it as accessible and, you know, put some restrictions around um, around it like what they have in other countries and, you know, manage it as a problem um, that society is dealing with. It isn't about just the individuals who gamble. Yeah, well, actually, gambling is normalised and celebrated in Australia. In fact, my heart goes, just drops every time I see the young fellows living together, gambling together in those ads on TV. Yes, and they exactly. put them on the high, on a high mountain as if it's the fresh air of freedom. <laughs> exactly right. I mean, they're very sophisticated those ads, and they're really targeting, um, especially young men, but increasingly young women. Um, you know, with the idea that this is social, this is about being part of a group, you know, a group, and having fun, and it's, it's all um, you know not problematic. It's just it's all just light fun. And we know that isn't the case. And we know that the earlier kids are exposed to this concept of normalisation of gambling, which is very much the case in Australia when you've got both machines on every other street corner. You know, we have them in every suburb in Australia. In other countries, they don't have that either. Um, then they're more likely to go on to, to become... Um, gamblers and they're more likely to, to experience harm. Now we've uh, covered a little bit of and only the tip of the iceberg of uh, the gambling industry's lobby, lobbying proficiency. Uh, part of their argument of course is bad money to good taxes re re uh, uh, derived from gambling are often placed in state hospitals, mental health and charity funds and so governments are reliant on those taxes. But, of course, there's the obverse is that uh, uh, the very dark thing that you've intimated, which is all these terrible things that happen, flood the society that we live in that have to be picked up, the bill that has to be picked up, and the economic losses. Mm. Well, we also, I mean, it's quite damning that we've come to rely on revenue from gambling to support other community services and, and programs. I mean, that's just astounding, really, and other countries have not put themselves in that position to the same extent. Um, and you're quite right. I mean, in terms of the cost of this issue, um, it's significant. And, uh, you know, we have not really even been able to quantify what that cost is. We know what the harms are. We know the impact it's having. We know that it has an impact on all sorts of health, mental health and other 
um, issues that are costing us as a society. Um, we haven't really put a figure on it because we don't even collect the data. We don't even ask these gambling companies to produce the data. Most of them collect our data and keep our data. They don't actually hand it over to government. So we often, if we were to go out now, and we've tried this <laughs> with um, looking at the real costs of gambling in Australia, it's very difficult to do because we just simply don't capture the data. And the, the industry has been very... Um, astute at being able to set their own regulations because they co-regulate with government. Very often um, in this area, governments talk directly to the gambling industry. Because they're a major stakeholder, in inverted commas. Well, they're the only one in this area, and they shouldn't be. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, can you imagine us sitting down with the tobacco industry and the tobacco industry and government setting their own regulations, it just wouldn't happen, and it shouldn't happen here either. Well, uh, actually, when I was um, working on this story, I actually put Wolf in charge of Hen House. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's a very good analogy. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. pretty awful, but uh, your report is actually quite a complex uh, piece, and I'll put the link for people to go to it on our podcast. Uh, because you've actually got a whole lot of very interesting things around what needs to be done, including the issue of research and data. That's really fascinating to me that you've gone that far. But there's a whole other, other range of things that you are calling for, aren't there? There are. Look, the simple reality is we don't have a national approach to gambling harm in Australia at all. Not one health department in Australia deals with gambling harm. So we, you know, we don't even recognise it. When we're talking about gambling harm, we're often talking about the harm to industry if it isn't making the same level of profits. <laughs> That's how governments <laughs> interpret harm. So we've got a long way to go, and that includes everything from prevention and education, awareness, to treatment, to research. I mean, we just are so far behind, and we need to catch up because this problem's getting in front of us, and it's impacting our kids and our communities um, in a very big way. So it is important, um, and there is a national inquiry coming up, a report due out in June or July, and we are very keen to see the federal government pick that report up and implement those recommendations because we want to see real change in this area um, for our future generations, but, you know, to... It's something that we need to do, like we did with tobacco. It's a very similar kind of harmful product. Thanks for talking to us this morning, Carol. Thank you so much. Appreciate your time. 3CR's annual Radiothon fundraiser launches in June. We need your financial support to be independent, community-controlled and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon keeps the station radical and enables us to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. 3CR Radiothon, show your support during June 2023. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical.
You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and uh, I should remind you that this is Mabo Day and there will be a group of people at Federation Square at 12 noon today to celebrate and to uh, remember uh, the most important date in the Australian political calendar, I'd have to say. Uh, It's the last day of Reconciliation Week and uh, I reckon probably June the 3rd is a close call for what would be our national day but uh, because it brings together the two important elements, the uh, colonial experience and the Indigenous fight back. Uh, And... uh, We're going to move on to another kind of fight back. Uh, I had the uh, privilege, really, of having a chat with uh, Dave Fishwick. Now, Dave Fishwick is uh, a bit of a phenomenon, really, and his his phenomenon is uh, actually documented in a, a feature film that's out at the moment called The Bank of Dave. Um, I won't uh, bore you with my interpretation because the conversation kind of uh, divulges the purpose of Dave and why it was a joy to speak to the man. Annie, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Fabulous. How are you? <laughs> good. Um, the The Bank of Dave, which is the movie that's just out, is all about you, right? Yes, and it's um, it's it's great fun, and it's been wonderful to be part of it. Um, very very surreal. Yeah, it must be, especially since you're not actually dead. Yes, exactly, and that's the thing. Normally, a biopic, when somebody wants to make a biopic about your life, you're dead, and I'm alive. <laughs> so it's uh, it's bonkers. Now tell me. Um, what led you, I mean, I know the film tells tells the story, but um, I'm really deeply interested in how you got the guts to say to the establishment that you wanted to make a local bank. So tell me about that. Yes, what happened was, is late 2008, early 2009, my minibus customers, because I sell buses, my minibus customers were coming to me at first and saying, uh, I want to buy that vehicle, and I'd fill the forms in, I'd send it off to the bank, and the bank would pay for the bus for them. And then overnight, that just stopped. The banks just stopped lending to them. And I thought, have these people done something wrong? Have they got a CCJ? Have they not paid a bill? Have they moved house? But you know what, Annie? They'd done nothing wrong. The banks just decided they were no longer going to lend to real people. So I thought, well, perhaps I should lend them the money. They can buy the bus and then pay me back. So that's what I did. I started lending the money, and these people bought the bus, and they went and, and used it on jobs, and they were picking kids up and taking them home at night, and they were doing stag do's and hen parties and things and taking people to the races, and they were paying me back each month. And I'm thinking, banking malarkey, it's not that difficult. And, and then I thought, well, maybe I can help other businesses as well. Maybe I can help other smaller businesses. So then I thought, I'll open a community bank that helps all small businesses in my community. So I went to London, and I went to meet a guy called Andrew Hilton, who was the head of the banking think tank and head of all the bankers. And I said to him, I said, I want to open a little bank. And he said, where are you from? I said, I'm from Burnley. That put him off for starters. And then he said, what have you done in the past? I said, well... Um, I will build this labour and I sell buses and, oh, no, 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 no. He said, uh, have you been to Oxford or Cambridge? And I said, 
you don't get them sorts of opportunities when you come from Burnley. It's a tough place to live. You get a job and you work. And he said, well, what do your mum and dad do? I said, well, my dad was a farm labourer in the morning and then he went down to the local mill and he did two till ten shift at the local mill as a tackler fixing looms. And I said, my mum was a weaver in the same mill. And he said, no, no, it'll not work. He said, you've not got the correct parents, you've not been to the correct school and you're not from the correct place. And I kid you not, that's exactly what he said. That's amazing, isn't it? Um, this boys' club—it's a boys' club. Uh, you'd have to say has been um, holding the purse strings in England and probably much further for 150 years, right? Yes, and this is the crazy thing because when I ring up to speak to the Bank of England and the regulators and things, bearing in mind there's not been anybody that's applied for a, a high street bank for over 150 years. They say they're always busy and they can't talk to me. How can they be busy? There's nobody opened one. <laughs> well, that's the thing, isn't it? Uh, your idea was to have a local bank that lent to local businesses and local people. And you actually found that even when you didn't have the bank, that none of your people reneged on their uh, loans. No, that's right. Nobody didn't pay. And this is the thing. I wanted to, I wanted to build a community bank called Burnley Savings and Loans, and I wanted to help hard-working people and pensioners get the best rate of interest on the high street, because banks don't pay decent interest. I then wanted to take that money and lend it to people and businesses who couldn't borrow from the high street banks. I then wanted to take the profit from that and pay the overheads and the difference give to local charities. I thought, how difficult can it be? And nobody seemed to want that happen. And when I say nobody, I'm on about regulators, I'm on about the big banks, I'm on about the, the people that make these decisions. They just didn't want that to happen or to work. And, you know, it really is incredible. And I'll give you an example. Uh, recently, I, re I received a phone call from a school around the corner from the Bank of Dave. And uh, the headmistress rang me and she was uh, really upset. She's saying, look, I really need you to help if you can. The children are coming to school in the morning hungry. The parents can no longer feed them three meals a day. They can only feed them two. So in the morning, they're not getting the breakfast. So she sent me a link to these big industrial toasting machines and equipment for the school kitchen. And I asked her to send me a link to the food she needed. So we've given them the money for a year's supply of food. And I said, three months before that runs out, ring us again and we'll give you money for another 12 months supply of food. And we'll continue to do that. And let's get the kids fed. Now, when you've got that, where you've got kids coming to school starving. And on the other hand, you've got Montatelli talking to bankers who are telling me, unless they get the $30 million bonuses, they're going to go back to America and, and, and never come back. And you just think, how can we have such a diverse uh, section uh, of people in the world where somebody needs $30 million for doing a job, and yet I've got children in Burnley that are starving to death? Oh, it's just outrageous, isn't it? Can you tell me, uh, I mean, you ultimately did get the bank, didn't you? Well, we've got a licence to do it now. We're going through the final part of the full-blown big licence, which will allow me to take more money from the public. So I'm working with Rishi Sunak, who stood up in Parliament a few weeks ago and used me as an example. He's introduced me to his Treasury Secretary, Mr Andrew Griffiths, and Andrew Griffiths has now met me. And he's speaking with my lawyers as we speak. Um, and we're, they're trying very hard to get me across the line for the big licence. 
So we're well, well, well on the way. But in the meantime, we've lent over 50 million to thousands of people and businesses in the last 12 years. And so are they using your experience uh, to copy in other areas, other places? I've offered this to them. That's a really good question. That Nobody's asked me that before. I've offered to Andrew Griffiths, the, um, the Treasury Secretary, and to Joe Gideon, the MP that's, uh, that's champion, uh, championing this project for the Bank of Dave. I've offered to say, look, once we've got across the line, we will, myself and David H., my right-hand man, David Enshaw, is very, very important in this scenario because he's 55 years in banking experience, the old-fashioned bank manager that knew you, knew where you lived, knew what you were buying, and David's trained all our staff to be exactly the same way as him. And it, that is so important. But there's a lot of them people around in New Zealand, in Australia. There's a lot of them old bank managers that are semi-retired who would, I'm sure, love to take part in a community project themselves, um, who know the areas of the community that they're in. Um, but I've offered to the um, to the Prime Minister and to um, the Treasury Secretary, I've said, look, we will gladly hand out all our paperwork and run a pilot scheme for you and then work together to see how it can be replicated in other parts of the country. And I would gladly help people in other parts of the world for exactly the same, because I think it's not not just in the UK that there's a, uh, these problems, because, I mean, I'm in Australia at the moment, I'm coming to New Zealand tomorrow, and it just seems to be, um, really, the UK and New Zealand and Australia, we're, we're, we're all... You know, we all speak the same language, and I just think we could work much, much closer together. This is a revolution, though, because what you're doing is you're saying to the uh, big end of town that, uh, as it says in the film, they make the laws, they make the rules, and so they've uh, weighted the entire system to their needs, but leaving everybody else by the by the wayside, by the road. And it's really having a really negative effect on people, society. Yes. And, and society, I'm a big believer in this. If somebody works really, really hard, then they deserve more than somebody that, that doesn't want to work hard. However, I also believe very strongly in the needs to be a net for people to fall on, to bounce back up into society and to have an equal chance like everybody else does of being able to work hard and better the self. So it's really important we level things up in the UK and I'm absolutely positive that it's the same in other parts of the world. Um, people seem to get left behind, in Burnley especially. Burnley's a really, really tough place to live and there's a lot of people in poverty, there's a lot of people that, that use food banks, there's a lot of people haven't got a job that's trying really hard to get a job. Um, and it's just, it just you, you go to London, it's just a completely different world almost. And we just need a fairer system to allow people in other parts of the country and indeed the world to have the same sort of opportunities. Have you been getting pushback from other parts of the financial sector? Yeah, well, the financial industry doesn't like me. The big banks don't like me, but I don't care. I quite like that. Um, the payday loan companies don't like me. They prey on the terrible things that they do to the poor and vulnerable. And I don't know if you've heard of the payday loan companies, but they charge 5,000% APR. And uh, I took the industry on and I helped shut the biggest one in England down, um, sorry, in the UK down. And uh, we won a Royal Tillman Society Award for that. 
But I just think there's, there's such a gap of equality uh, in these sorts of places that it's just not fair. No, it's not fair and it's dangerous. There's a lot of money in poverty, isn't there? Yes, and, and people are... Um, some of the payday loan companies, I mean, I, I spent six months making the series and I, I met people that had actually set themselves on fire because they just were so frightened of the of the debt and the people that were coming after them. Um, you know, I met young people who had run away from home to the other side of the world to get away from the debt collectors. And uh, it, it's just a horrendous operation of people. Um, and I'm frightened of nothing and no one on the planet. And I went after them and I got the big one shut down. But it just needs it needs turbocharging, does that sort of thing by the governments and and the powerful people in the world to stop these people setting up. It always seems to be that the poor end up with the worst end of the stick. Why is it that the government has? I mean, they they would say they're not acting illegally, but there should be laws against them, surely. Well, I think the the people I met, to be honest, Annie, the people I met who were trying to defend the payday loan industry um they was being paid such a lot of money to lobby parliament and to to get the voice heard and the problem is with the poor and vulnerable they can't lobby parliament they can't get the voice heard so it takes somebody to stand up and stick up for them and i met so many that had had such a tough time that i dug them out of the poverty that they were in i met 25 different sets of people and i actually dug them out of the payday loans they were in but to try and pay the payday loan companies back, it was absolutely incredibly difficult finding these people and giving them the money back because they don't actually want the initial money back. They want to carry on charging the poor forever because that's how they prey on them. Oh, it's so disgraceful. Um, it is. Can you give me some idea of um, your impression of what's going on in England at the moment? I mean, I know that you're doing something that's making... Uh, inequality uh, reduced, but is is uh, what's going on for people in England at the moment? Well, I think a lot of people are having it tough. Um, I think Rishi is trying to do to try and um, level things out as best he can, but he's got a massive, massive task because there's some very, very wealthy people in the UK, and they seem to climb up a tree and pull the ladder up. And they're frightened of anybody knowing anything or having anything. And it's just so, so wrong. But I started with nothing. I was a bill labourer on $50 a week, and I worked really hard for that $50 a week. My dad was a labourer on a farm, and he had two jobs a day, seven days a week, all his life. I grew up in a house that didn't have an inside toilet. I didn't even know people had a bathroom until I got to 12 years old. You know, I didn't know there were such a thing as toilets in houses, inside a house, because we always had one in the, in the backyard. And I think you've got to you've got to grow up understanding things to be able to make a difference later in life, because you, you must never forget where you come from or you can never get to where you're going. <laughs> uh, the other thing is that there was a sequence in the film that was really important, which was the young woman who was the doctor who was uh, fighting for a free clinic. But there was yeah. mention made of the NHS and how much the NHS is such an important uh, element of um, English society, but it's been gutted by successive governments and uh, outsourcing uh, to uh, expensive uh, private companies. 
that was a bit, that's a very important element in uh, society in England, isn't it? At the moment, big conversation. I love NHS. I think everybody should have access to healthcare. I think everybody in the world should have access to healthcare. Nobody wants to be poorer. Nobody wants to be that person that needs that service. But it's just like fundamental part of life being able to get fixed. And it's fundamentally part of life that you can get food. And children should be fed. Everybody should be fed. People should be allowed... Uh, 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 people should be able to turn the electric lights on and the gas on when they need to. Um, and they should be able to go to a hospital and be fixed. Whatever race, colour, doesn't matter. You should have the fundamental of being able to, to, to have the, the healthcare system. And I love doctors, the NHS and the surgeons. What I don't love is these big private companies that make all the money out of it. I think the government, you know, put lots of money into these things. I think the heart's in the right place, but I think they just trust sometimes the wrong people. And I think you give money to these big private companies, huge big operations that most of them aren't even in Britain. Um, and they take so many cuts out of it that by the time it actually gets to the point where it's fixing somebody, it's been diluted so much that we need more. And I think if you get me in the NHS and let me do the buying, because that's what I do for a living, I buy and sell things, I will sit on the board and I will look. So when somebody says this cancer machine is going to be $40 million from America, the first thing I'm going to say is, will they take off? You know, and we'll work his way up from there. Where a lot of these big private companies, they'll just buy them because everybody's going to be on a drink somewhere. When I say a drink, everybody's going to be on a court. You know, and that worries me. But I love the NHS. And I think, um, and, and like I said, I don't actually think it's the government's fault. I think it's actually the private big company operator. And I'm sure that's happening really, and it's happening everywhere. There's so many greed. The greed is the biggest problem. Yeah, 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 that's exactly what's going on here. And uh, you don't get the money, uh, the value for your money when you outsource. Um, the, the the film, uh, The Bank of Dave, did they come to you or are you just a supreme uh, um, publicist for yourself and the ideas? No, what happened was when I started doing the documentary, there were no film, there were no television, there were no nothing. I actually were doing The Bank of Dave because I wanted to do it. It was the television people that turned up on my doorstep and asked if they could film me. And initially, I said no. But once I got into the, some of the problems that I was receiving from the regulators, I realised I needed the media to protect me as I got into it because I needed a voice. So I then said, agreed to the first documentary 12 years ago. And since then, I've made 10 documentaries, nominated for three BAFTAs, Royal Television Society Awards and six broadcast awards. You know, I made a series about, I made a series about um, uh, uh, job centres. I opened job centres for disadvantaged children and I raised £2 million. Uh, it was called Secret Millions. And I went and raised £2 million for for pop-up job centres to open for disadvantaged kids. Um, I'm only interested in making programs that are going to make a difference. I get offered also. I get offered to, to do all sorts of things. I'm just not interested in the slightest. I don't want to go skiing. I don't want to go down a ski slope and complain <laughs> off the other side. I am not interested in any of it. Um, but when somebody rings me and said, you know, you can take the payday loan industry on, then I'm interested. Yeah, yeah. Well, the film's great. It's uh, a great little... Um, it, it's just great. And I'm so glad to talk to you. Thank you very much for your work. You're very welcome, Annie. I'm, I'm hope I get to speak to you again sometime. Yeah, thank you. Bye bye. All the best. Bye bye now.
Yeah, well, what an inspirational fellow. Um, uh, Dave Fishwick, you should go and see the film The Bank of Dave if you want to uh, get a uh, feeling that uh, everything isn't doom and gloom. Join us at the Collingwood Neighbourhood House for the launch of the Underground Survival Project Part 5 a zombie film series that began on the Collingwood housing estate over lockdown. The series travels from Collingwood to the desert in South Australia and the most recent episode, The Industrial Wastelands of Upfield. Check out the film, have a feed and raise some cash for our 3CR show, Satellite Skies, this Radiothon. 6pm Friday, 9th of June. See you there. Three shades of black is where I come from. A weak solidarity, Bricky Team listener, when caring employers expressed deep concern after the fair work Trubler was, he no longer worked choices, just looked like a commission, awarded the lazy, avaricious, lowest of the low paid a 5.75% increase to their lowest of pay. Heading the caring employer's concerned timely warnings, please, that allowing workers pay to maintain their standard of living would destroy their standard of living and the standard of living of all of us. Commissioner Hatchet the workers saying this was all the economy could bear, which might explain why, despite their stated concern, caring employers looked very pleased with themselves. The decision showing fairy tales are fairy tales, like the tortoise beating the hare, when in real life the runaway inflation hare has streaked away from the struggling, toiling tortoise. Although the fairy tale tortoise had one advantage over the lowest of low paid, it had its home stuck on its back, rather than having less buying power stuck on their backs. We asked the wisest and most knowledgeable of the caring employers, our old mate, the true blue Aussie industry profits group, Supremo Innes, will cost the workers his expert opinion. Uh, this will cost jobs and will definitely flame inflation. Uh, so workers will fall even further behind in us. It's their own fault for being so greedy and selfish. Uh, but Innes, notice the filthiest rich of the filthy rich have doubled their wealth over the past two years which shows the value of hard work. The lowest of low paid should learn from them. No, we would have liked an increase somewhere south of 5.75%. Um, how much south in us? Well, roughly 5.75%. And yet, ignoring this expert knowledge, that out-of-control, fast-food and retail evil union boss, Josh Cowanen, attacked the decision as inadequate, pushing workers further behind. Where, where is he coming from? So aren't we lucky we have experts who understand the intricacies of the greatest little economic order of them all to provide the solutions we ignoramuses, well, I won't assume you, listener, but ignoramus workers and evil unionists and, yes, me, to provide the solutions we need, like Reserve Losses Bank Supremo Ian Lay the Workers Low, who has solved all the problems. Workers must be out of work, and those not out of work must take a pay cut, and then inflation will be solved. Uh, but you've been increasing interest rates month after month, and inflation keeps going up. That's because not enough workers are unemployed, and those employed earn too much. 
you haven't thought caring employers and the caring business class putting up their prices might have a, a bit to do with it, Ian? No, no, because that is a typical fallacious argument of those who have no comprehension of economic principles, selfish, overpaid workers who refuse to be unemployed, and the evil union officials who, with a few welcome exceptions, refuse to work with caring employers for the common good. Uh, if inflation keeps soaring and wages remain depressed, how are wages causing inflation, Ian? Clearly, if the price of labour increases, that is inflation. Uh, but if they don't increase, workers keep falling further behind. And if they do, inflation will be even higher. Selfish workers can't have it both ways. Uh, by the way, Ian, given banks are a licence to print money, a private mint, how come the Reserve Losses Bank doesn't make a profit? Uh, it is fair to say we have had a, a run of bad luck. But in his relentless desire to make life better for all of us, Ian has solved the housing crisis. All lived together, problem solved, one big national home. <laughs> no, that's silly, but I've heard you've got five bedrooms, Ian. How many in housing crisis can you accommodate? None. None of my friends are in housing crisis. But good news, the week that was has come up with an even better contribution based on Ian's invaluable solution. See, there's halls and community spaces all over our municipalities and the unemployed needed for a healthy economy and low-paid workers needed for a healthy economy who can't afford the inflationary rents, let alone inflationary house prices, and mortgagees who can't meet the ever-increasing interest rates and which have worked such a treat in addressing inflation and also end up on the street, then let's bring back the poorhouse. Convert all these halls, community centres, I'd even suggest parks and gutters, except these people should be kept out of sight of cooth, civilised people like Ian. Convert them into huge poorhouses and give each person a sleeping bag to throw on the floor at a most reasonable rental cost. And if they can't afford that, well, get a job, I say. Although, of course, many of them have got a job. Their wages are the issue causing all these problems, so... So don't get a job. Oh, it's so complicated. Anyway, adopt this extension of Ian's great idea, and that's the last we'll hear of a housing crisis. Yet there's speculation the government won't reappoint Ian in September, but the caring business class party has wished him well and said they hope he is reappointed. Because like us, listener, they know what a success story he has been. In truth, Ian's inspired solution, the poor house, is a backup to the real housing crisis solution the wise heads of the honourable property industry advise. Housing supply. Get rid of all the red tape and environmental nonsense and nonsense interfering objectors and just build more housing. Just a bit of a pity then that a think tank called Prosper, interesting name, Prosper study showed increasing supply did not increase rental availability and it goes without saying affordability. But what would they know compared to the property industry? Those hoping the state socialists could take decisive steps to address the housing crisis can take solace from the revelation this week that more than half the socialist MPs, including lots of ministers, own heaps of investment properties. Most state Labor MPs are property barons, the Troubluwazi Capitalist Review headlined. That must explain all they're doing to make life easier for renters, real socialist values. 
On admirable values, we've noted how great corporate citizen Santosas for Profits had a conversion on the road to environmental destruction after declaring Tiwi Islanders were not relevant persons in relation to Santosas wanting to run a pipeline through their waters. But being told by the federal court, well, yes, they are relevant persons and you, you have to consult them. Suddenly it's advertising how much it just loves terra nullius non-people, although that love doesn't run to it fracking the Beetaloo Basin where the local terra nullius non-people object vehemently, but alas, are obviously not relevant persons in their own country. But that love extended this week by company supremo Kevin Gallagher, don't hear them, who said Santosas can't quite say yes on a voice referendum because it might allow the terrenalist non-people it now loves to, loves to delay mining projects even more than the economy-crippling delays they already face. See? Admirable value. Oh, and the ads say the Barossa gas project running through Tiwi Island waters has, quote, proposed control measures to seek to reduce any impacts and risks to, and here's the bit we find interesting, uh, listener, impacts and risks to as low as reasonably practicable at an acceptable level. Now, a definition of reasonably practicable and to whom an acceptable level is acceptable wouldn't have gone astray. Some long-haired commie greenies might even suggest it's actually an admission of impacts and risks of pollution, but fear not, it's odds on they'll get their permit. With conditions, of course, which Kevin and the gang would never dream of ignoring, because they know our environmental authorities are so dedicated and assiduous. Why, they even wrapped a major polluter over the knuckles back in, oh, I can't quite think of the year, 19-something it was, but, but the important thing is they did it. That's why Kevin and the pollution beer must shake in their boots whenever environmental protection is mentioned. One voice on The Voice this week, Deputy Caring Business Class Party Supremo Susan Lees and Dregs, told Parliament she will vote no with a heavy heart. Well, Susan, let's suggest one way you can avoid a heavy heart. That bastion of democracy and fair play, the AFL, decreed the accused in the so-called racism scandal had no case to answer, and therefore it would impose penalties on Hawthorne. Uh, let's check that. They did nothing wrong, therefore we'll have to penalise them. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, what is your verdict? Uh, a not guilty, Your Honour. Accused, please stand. The jury has found you not guilty. Ten years hard labour. Although, not sure the terra nullius non-people involved in the political football issue would consider there was no case to answer. On cases to answer, wondering when those train killers named three years ago as worthy of investigation over war crimes and murder in Afghanistan will be charged. Three years and still nothing. It must be very complicated. And we thought the evidence was pretty clear. Thus, spare a thought for poor and may be about to get much poorer depending on where costs end up, Ben Robbers smite them, whom his honour concluded just may have been involved in a bit of all that, plus domestic violence. I got the feeling halfway through the protracted defamation trial as the evidence mounted, Ben just may have been regretting suing the media in the first place. But in the 
did I hear that correctly? Could you repeat that department? Troubler was his number one train killer, Angus Dumbbell, warned our father country, the US of the UN of the US of the world, could refuse to cooperate with Troubler was he on trained killing because of war crimes and abuses of human rights. Let's repeat that. The US of abhors war crimes and abuses of human rights. The US of then why the hell is Julian Assange rotting in an isolation cell in London? With similar logic, the tax department said it could not report to government ministers what it knew for years about PwC for pricks with confidentiality, making trillions by breaching confidentiality because the department was bound by, wait for it, by confidentiality. Satire can't compete. Those Lord Rupert of Wapping ads for his Troubluwazi trading with the big red Troubluwazi up the top slogans for the informed reader, with which we have to agree, because only the informed reader would be guaranteed to know it's all total crap. In the doesn't our heart bleed for them department, private schools are complaining that having to pay tax would force them to charge parents even more. Oh dear, what more can we say? Does no heart bleed for the poor dears and for poor Ben? So finally, if ever, if every troubler was, he popped a dollar into the help killer war criminal Ben appeal, it would almost pay his legal bill. Oh, let's say how we really feel. Couldn't happen to a nicer, could it? Good morning. Yeah, good morning, Kevin. What a hoot. That was a fantastic This Is The Week that was this week. Uh, I laughed out loud at least four, five, six times. <laughs> now, we're coming to the end of the show. Uh, yes, we've only got, we've got half an hour to go on Solidarity Breakfast, but I'm devoting it to the slow walk through the city that happened last Saturday. Uh, it was a almost hypnotic uh, experience. I went with uh, Extinction Rebellion. They were occupying Nam, uh, 25th, 26th, 27th, and they threatened that they're going to be back in, in warmer climes uh, later in the year. Uh, but there was a fantastic affair walking through the city, not at a brisk pace. They took over the city for about three hours in this slow walk. Uh, of course, there's only half an hour left, so we're only going to hear some of what happened, but hopefully you will be inspired. Yeah, I'm from 3CR. Oh, great, yeah. Why are you here? All the animals, humans included, need a safe place. We cannot let the multinationals control what's happening by accepting small donations are given to politicians in return for huge subsidies, $22,000 a minute apparently to some of the fossil fuel companies. Not just the, the fossil fuel uh, subsidy on diesel that they use, but they get roads put in for nothing. They get water for free and they get not charged the royalties. They're meant to pay for Australia's own uh, resources. There's so many issues, but it comes down to politics, big business, multinationals ruling the roost. This is people power taking action, saying it's wrong, helping change the dynamics of, of everything that's been happening politically over the last few years is gradually coming back to common sense and survival for the people's sake. But it's still got a long way to go. We do need people to get more active. Like, I'm, I'm in over 70, but I, I this is my wonderful retirement job. I've got lots of lovely people to work with. 
they are all doing whatever they're good at, whatever we can contribute time-wise and energy-wise and skill-wise, we do it. Like people today are dressing up, they're having a fun, colourful action as well as supporting each other but getting the message out because photographs will go all over the world about this. We've got, if you described the beautiful mechanical Blinky the koala. Tell us about that. Okay, it's a huge half skeleton, half fur burnt in the fires representing the bushfires. It roars up with a great big sound installation of, of its pain and it emits smoke. And in front of us we have Miss Beebe Have, who is a blue banded bee, mechanical again, and all decorated with flowers and foliage too, to show that we need bees are life, they pollinate all our food, they are essential. The more poisons we use, the more we go for fast agriculture, monoculture, the worse we are survival ways. It's all connected. Everything we do for the planet helps us and our creatures and the biosphere keep supporting us. It's selfish, but it's also for the creature's sake because what makes us more special than anyone else? We're not. We're part of the whole. We need the insects and the bees. When the planet is under attack, what do we do? We're not like that. When the planet is under attack, what do we do? We're not like that. and we pay our respects to elders past and present and we sincerely hope that everything we do as Extinction Rebellion and as other activist groups who have come out here today will also be things that help to put forward the cause of First Nations justice, justice for First Nations people as well. Just so everybody knows what the deal is today, we are going to be doing a nice slow walk around the city. Uh, the route that we are going to be taking is we are going to be going down Lonsdale Street here. We're going to go to the corner of Elizabeth and Lonsdale where we will be having uh, some more speeches, a couple of speakers there. We will then be turning right up Elizabeth Street and stopping just outside Queen Vic Market to say hello to all the people doing their market shopping on this very chilly Saturday morning. Uh, there will be a couple more speeches there. We will then turn right and at the next big intersection, more speeches, so slow and lots of speeches along the way. And then we'll be turning into Swanson Street and coming up to the State Library where we will be hearing from our final speaker. So we have a lot of fantastic speakers from a lot of different groups. We're looking forward to hearing from them all. Uh, but what we are doing is starting with uh, one of Extinction Rebellion's own. Uh, so I'm going to pass the mic over to Alex O'Connor. So give her a big round of applause. Hello, good morning. Thank you for coming. Um, and thank you especially to the amazing organizers of our first Occupy for Climate. 
And thank you to everyone who has braved the rain and the cold and the council for staying here, joining our actions and maintaining this occupation. And the fact that so many people have put up with this cold shows that it must be bad. And things are getting really bad. In fact, they're getting so bad that unless we do a lot more of this, they're going to get a lot worse very quickly. We are in extreme and imminent danger. The climate emergency is not just a few more hot days or a few centimetres of sea level rise. If urgent action isn't taken, the cascade of catastrophes that will come with the climate crisis will be very likely to be so destabling to our planet that adaptation will not be possible. On our current trajectory, we are risking the collapse of organised society as we know it in our lifetimes. Scientists are saying that when we go into the next El Nino, which will probably be this year, we will likely cross the 1.5 degree threshold of warming. That's the 1.5 degree threshold that our government has been committed to keeping us below for eight years. The one where scientists say we will be crossing tipping points, causing feedback loops that accelerate warming and make things get very worse very quickly. But we can stop this from happening. Along with the dire warnings, the science is also clear that we have the tools to turn this around. It's a fairly simple equation. We need to stop emitting carbon, stop destroying nature, and repair the damage that has been done. There are brilliant, elegant, and most importantly, feasible solutions that are being proposed right now. So don't let anyone tell you that it's impossible. The reason it isn't happening has nothing to do with science. The reason nothing is happening is because of politics. Governments here and around the world are refusing to do even the bare minimum to prevent this catastrophe or even prepare for it. Whatever hope anyone might have had in Labour has been well and truly crushed. They are committed to maintaining business as usual. They approved four new coal projects in the last two weeks. But that's just par for the course on this continent. We are standing on the stolen land of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, who have been dispossessed and almost exterminated by the same system that brought us to this point. The national shame is still with us today, and it's not just the land that's been stolen. Yesterday marked the anniversary of Kevin Rudd's apology to the stolen generation. But what good is sorry when First Nations children are still being stolen from their families by the child protective services in this country right now? And today marks the beginning of Reconciliation Week. How can we pretend we, can re we are reconciling with First Nations people of this land when ancient art is being demolished to open new mines? When rivers and aquifers are, that sustained life for thousands of years are being poisoned? There is no climate justice without social justice, and there is no climate justice without First Nations justice. But of course, when people like you and me ex exercise our democratic right to peaceful protest to point this out and object to the willful murder of huge swathes of the currently living life on Earth, Labour governments around the country are cracking down and introducing jail terms and exorbitant fines as punishment. They do this, yeah. They do this to scare us and alienate us from the public because they know that unless they demonize and silence us, more and more people will realize that there is an alternative to letting ourselves get burnt alive. That if enough of us refuse to participate in this suicide pact and join together to demand a safe future, they will not be able to stop us.
Everyone participating in this campaign is here because we know that's what we need to do. Our mission now is to bring thousands of people along with us. We need a mass movement of people willing to stand up to the government's attempts to divide and silence us. In Extinction Rebellion, we believe that we ordinary people can collectively create the necessary structures to challenge power, and we want you to help us build them. This occupation has been the first ripple of an oncoming wave of people power that will transform our future. We will be returning to Occupy for Climate in the CBD again at the end of this year, when it is warmer, and again and again for as long as it takes. We are building to our climate endgame rebellion. To the day when 100,000 people are willing to take to the streets day after day in, ro in a rolling festival of civil disobedience. And I'm not joking, we have the sign-up sheet over there. Go sign up right now. We've got them all around the park, so scan the QR code, get in on the ground floor, and come have a chat with us after the march to see how you can be involved. Thank you once again for being here. <laughs> it brings such warmth to my cold, cold bones to see so many brave and committed people. Things are still really fucked, but together we're in a chance with unfucking them. Thank you.
Spread out nice and wide, everyone. We're taking up space today to occupy against climate inaction on this continent. I'm Tim. I'm a front. I'm a frontline direct action activist who's worked with Extinction Rebellion, and I've previously been involved with a group. Uh, I guess like maybe what you could call like a network of independent activists. Uh, that is referred to as Blockade Australia. And today I'm going to talk to you all about resistance. And so the fundamental point I want to get across today is that resistance is illegal. Peaceful protest is a fundamental part of a functioning democracy. But this is not a democracy. The right to protest is permission from the state to act within the bounds of their control. And when you step beyond that permission, they lock you in a box. And the loud echo slam of a steel door inside four concrete walls is a threat. It's a threat that says, you went outside the bounds of what we permitted you to do. To me, this is a clear indication of where they draw a line in the sand. And that line in the sand, to me, is the front line of resistance. Arrest is not a goal. Arrest is a consequence for refusing to comply with this system. This system is an illegal occupation on this land and it was set up without permission. They enforce that occupation with blood. They use guns and handcuffs, pepper spray and batons. Genocide. It's cold, calculated and callous. I was incarcerated last year for the crime of thinking about protesting. I was charged with aiding and abetting in the commission of future crimes. The future crimes in question being the, the new laws that were passed in New South Wales to outlaw disruptive protest. Um, laws, mind you, that haven't held up in court for the people who were actually charged with them. I um, want to caution people against using terms like draconian to talk about these sort of laws or defending the right to peaceful protest because peaceful protest is permitted on this continent and disruptive protest is what's illegal. They've drawn a line in the sand to tell us where we can and can't stand. Look around us. Right now there is a swarm of people working for the state keeping a box containing us into this particular area. That right there is the line in the sand. That is where they say, you stand on that side, not that side. And the, um, I guess, the threats that they use to keep us inside that box are things like fines, imprisonment, prejudice, blood, arrest, and weapons. And it's a scary thing to do to walk to the other side of that line, but the other side of that line is where resistance lies. It's on the other side of that line that they'll put you in the back of a police car. It's on the other side of that line that they will beat you, where they will hurt you, or at the very least, where they will put you through a court system for six to 12 months of your life to stop you from ever thinking about crossing that line again. But right here, we're occupying space. We're taking up space and we're making a message clear that we do not consent to the laws that have been imposed on this continent. We're here because we're together in staunch, defiant disruption. And the disruption is illegal. I say that again because when we disrupt, they try to prevent us from doing it. We're camping in a park up there. 
a small handful of people are sticking it out every night, listening to police sirens and threats of fines and pieces of paper being waved around. But nonetheless, we're occupying space and we're taking up space in the public. We've foregone very comfortable lives where we decide to just, you know, be really unoffensive. And we've devoted our time and ourselves to doing the things that say we do not consent to the occupation of this land. And so with all of our free time and all of our emotional space, we care for each other, we care for the planet, and we make it clear that we're going to stay. In short, um, we are resistance, and every step that we take in that direction is a step to say that we will not comply with a system that has violently monopolized control of this continent. We therefore must cross that line in the sand and make that message abundantly clear. And so uh, with that today, I want to encourage everyone to join with me in a chant, and that chant is, no borders, no nations, stop Australia's operations. 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 No borders, no nations, stop... Thank you for all coming here to this, the electorate of Melbourne that I'm lucky enough to represent. I want to acknowledge that we're on the lands of the Wurundjeri country and that there's a history of violence and dispossession at the heart of this country we call Australia. And it's time that we started telling the truth about that and understanding that we need to tell the truth and strike a treaty with our First Nations people and ensure that First Nations people are given the voice that they deserve. And there will be no climate justice without First Nations justice. And if we want to, and if we sit and look and understand that for over 60,000 years, they understood that the key thing that matters is the relationship we have with country and how you treat country. We have a lot to learn, including about how to tackle the climate crisis. It is time to tell the truth. We are in the fights, not just of our lives, but our kids' lives and our grandkids' lives. Because the decisions that get made now by governments and corporations will determine whether we can keep the climate crisis under control. Because if we tip over the edge, then no matter what our kids and our grandkids do, they will not be able to put the genie back in the bottle and climate change will become an uncontrollable chain reaction that will end up with large parts of this country that we all love becoming uninhabitable. And scientists are telling us that if we keep going at the rate that we are going, then by the end of this century, we could be in a situation where the carrying capacity of this planet is down to a billion people. And if you think about the wars and the destruction and the devastation that is involved in getting 7 billion people down to 1 billion people, during my daughter's lifetime, you understand the seriousness of this fight for all of our futures. This is a fight for civilization as we know it. And what we know very, very clearly 
from the scientists, from the UN Secretary General, from the Conservative International Energy Agency that represents the coal and the gas and the oil producers, is that if we are to have any chance, any chance at all, of meeting the climate goals that we know give us a decent chance at a safer life, then there can be no new coal or gas mines. No new coal or gas mines. But in the very week that the UN Secretary General is pleading with countries like Australia to do what is necessary to ensure that we limit global heating to one and a half degrees and stop our Pacific Island neighbours from seeing their homes go underwater. In that very same week, Labor comes out and says they want more coal and gas at the federal level and at the state level as well. If, if Labor keeps opening more coal and gas, then we are heading for societal collapse. And it is up to us now to stop it. And the people in this country do not want more coal and gas mines open. They just want an Australia where we don't have to go to every summer holidays worrying about how many people are gonna die in the bushfires or the heat waves. And they wanna know that you can build a house and it will be there today, tomorrow and next year and not be washed away by floods. That's what people in this country want. But we are up against it because there are coal and gas corporations that are making billions of dollars off the back of people's pain now, but attempting to squeeze out just a few more billions of dollars of profit before the world goes under. And it is up to us to stop them. What we know is that they have got governments, Liberal and Labor, in their pockets. Liberal and Labor take money from the coal and gas corporations and then turn around and open up new coal and gas mines, even as it puts the lives of us and our children and our grandchildren at risk. Well, we are the ones who are here to fight, to say, if we want our kids and our grandkids to have a chance at something like the life that all of us have had to be able to go to every summer holidays and enjoy it and not worry that their safety is going to be at risk. To live by the beach and not worry whether their homes are going to be washed away as sea level rise. Then there's one thing that we need to do and that is keep coal and gas in the ground. And here, here in this country, we have a special responsibility because Australia is the world's third largest exporter of fossil fuel pollution. And it's not just our pollution that goes up when we open those new gas mines in the Beedaloo or in Scarborough or Barossa, as Labor and Liberals want to do. It has a multiplier effect because that when we allow one of those gas mines to open up here, it allows countries worth of pollution to be burnt around the world. And we want to send a really clear message that it doesn't matter where it's burnt, it harms all of us. It harms all of us. The time for accounting tricks is over. The time for saying you can somehow reach net zero while opening up new coal and gas mines is a greenwashing con and that time is over as well. And you and all of us are going to keep fighting to avoid societal collapse, to ensure that our kids and our grandkids have a chance at a decent life with each other, where there's not war over resources and people dying because of heat waves and rising sea levels. And you have the public on your side. And there will be some who say, well, this causes inconvenience. Well, the inconvenience caused by an afternoon 
of taking a bit longer for people to need to, where, to get to where they need to go is nothing compared to avoiding the inconvenience of thousands of people dying in heat waves every year, of seeing people die, dying as their homes are washed away in floods. This is about ensuring all of our survival and a chance at a decent life and ensuring that our generation is not the one that hands down a worse quality of life to the ones who come after it simply because of corporate greed. So this fight has to continue for as long as it needs to until we keep coal and gas in the ground. And you know what? That's not only going to stop climate collapse, it's going to create jobs for everyone in this country. It's going to ensure an amazing quality of life for everyone in this country. When we have jobs with decent wages and secure incomes that aren't premised on cooking the planet but that are based on saving it, that's when everyone in this country is going to be able to lead a good quality of life and that is what we are fighting for. We are fighting for good jobs, good wages and a great quality of life for everyone in this country and it is the coal and gas corporations and the Labor and Liberal governments they have in their pocket who are standing in the way. So keep fighting. Non-violent Civil disobedience has changed the course of history before and it will do it again. No new coal and gas, keep it in the ground. Thank you very much. Well, that's where we leave uh, the Extinction Rebellion slow march on that was held last Saturday. You got a front row seat on 3CR. That's the end of Solidarity Breakfast. Uh, don't forget Marbo Day, 12pm, uh, Federation Square. Join up with the group that will be there. Uh, Healthy Futures was our first uh, uh, story. We talked to uh, Carol Bennett from the Alliance for Gambling Reform. I'll put the information about the report up on the podcast. Very interesting. Uh, We talked to Dave Fishwick from the Bank of Dave. Go and have a look at the movie because it's incredibly good fun and it's hard. It's just uh, everybody needs a a pick-me-up. And this is the week that was fantastic this week. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents and we'll go out with a song from Stephen Pigram. Who's your agent? How much you making? When you're gonna hit payday and are you trying to keep up with the times? Watch your politics today and where's a party gonna be tonight? Well, I just wanna roll around like a big old sun that's sinking down Burning up my blues along the way Hiding out in my own town on the edge of the gossip flying round Is the tide out? Is the tide in? Check the moon, I'm going fishing. Don't you believe what them papers say? Did you enjoy listening to that podcast? 
3CR is a community radio station, and you, the listener, are a part of that community. Right now, it's our Radiothon. We need you to pitch in with a few dollars to keep the station going. We can't do it without you. It's easy. Head to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. Your donations really matter.